Good evening and welcome. I'm Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here at the AGO. And I'm delighted to welcome you for our, the first of our series of six lectures on Catherine the Great. Um, I should start by saying that we have a sponsor for this education series, the Catherine Society, Women Inspired by Catherine the Great. So thank you, Catherine Society. Tonight's lecture on Catherine's passion for architecture is going to be given by David Wistow. David Wistow is an excellent person for this lecture. He works here as an interpretive planner in the European Department, and as such, it was his duty to research and prepare the audio tape that some of you may have listened to already in the exhibition. And of course, to do that, if you can imagine the amount of knowledge he has to absorb to weed out and create that audio tape, not only that, but David has twice been to St. Petersburg and has spent a long time studying and being passionate about this topic. So without more ado, I'd like to invite David Wistow. Thank you very much and good evening. I was going to begin by saying um, welcome to all you Catherine the Great lovers, but under the cir circumstances... I thought I should perhaps rethink that. Uh, welcome all of you enthusiasts um, on the subject of Catherine the Great. Uh, what an astonishing woman. We've had a great time learning about her. I'm certainly convinced that she is the most powerful woman in all of history. Um, probably one of the most intelligent. I think that uh, she was a visionary. Uh, she was a workaholic. She was a multitasker. She knew how to hire the right people. She knew how to delegate. She knew how to make decisions. She knew how to consult. And with all those extraordinary talents and many more, which I think we'll talk about this evening, she set a goal for herself, and that was essentially to transform the Russia that she encountered. Right? And that's essentially the topic of the exhibition upstairs, how essentially she uses art in that transformation process. And, of course, I'm going to talk about specifically the architectural angle uh, on all of this. Could I have the lights down, please? Can I have some... Uh... That's great. We think that's Catherine. It was the last time. Very good. There she is. Well, to begin with, Catherine, of course, um, was interested in the issue of architecture. It was a kind of personal passion as well as a kind of state policy for her. And even in this uh, state portrait, in a way, she's articulating her need to use architecture in, in, a, in a variety of ways. And here, she's essentially saying that she's using architecture as a stage for her to act upon. And of course, her role is that of uh, empress. To backtrack for one moment, because I know that I'm number one in the series, and perhaps some of you haven't seen the exhibition, here's how Catherine kind of evolved. Born 1729 to a very insignificant German princely family, impoverished, plucked out of that relative obscurity at the age of 14 to marry a 14-year-old heir to the Russian throne named Peter. Here she is on the right uh, in her teenage years. The two of them waited in the wings for 17 years until the death of the then Empress Elizabeth. And in the meantime, Catherine, who was a, a dutiful, hardworking, I would say, and focused young 
well, she began her life as a Lutheran, did a few things. She converted to Russian Orthodoxy. She learned Russian, which would be no mean feat. And she studied like crazy. She was a serious autodidact. She taught herself, essentially, having already had something of a classical education in Germany as a young woman. And she made friends in high places. So when Empress Elizabeth died and her husband came to the throne, Catherine was positioned to do something that she had planned to do uh, from, I think, her early years, and that is to reign and to reign alone. Of course, her husband stood in the way of that, of that goal. She once said, I will reign or die, and she certainly opened it, openly declared that she was the most ambitious woman who'd ever lived. So she combined a lot of skills and a lot of knowledge and a lot of important friends in 1762 to stage a successful and bloodless coup d'etat. It was so easy to steal the throne from her husband, who was, by all accounts, certainly weak and certainly incompetent and inappropriate, essentially, to lead, to lead the Russian people. Sadly, a week later, uh, he was assassinated. No one knows exactly how. But obviously, this, this cast a very dark stain on Catherine's reputation. And it spent, uh, she spent, I think, a couple of decades, in a sense, trying to rectify this, this rather unfortunate, in a sense, occurrence. She worked uh, very hard at it, and the arts upstairs and, and architecture all contributed to her attempts to essentially legitimize what was a completely illegitimate claim to the Russian throne. We shouldn't forget she had no Russian blood. She had no real uh, connection right, to the Russian scene. So she worked very, very hard from a position of insecurity and I would say of anxiety, essentially, over several decades. She had uh, several passions in her life in the field of art, but one in particular unquestionably was architecture in all of its forms. She loved it. She understood it. She had an innate sense of what is beautiful, and luckily enough for her, for her architects, she had virtually unlimited resources to realize her dreams. And these dreams seemed to take two forms. One was essentially a result of a state policy, and the other was a kind of private passion, right, to live amongst uh, beautiful uh, surroundings. So the slide on the left, in a way, is an indication right off the top that Catherine is interested in a few things. She's interested in bringing order to the Russian people. And where today, I think, sadly, you know, history's been somewhat unkind to her, we, we often see her as a kind of sex goddess, uh, she really wanted to be remembered as a maker of laws. I found that surprising, astonishing, actually. As a maker of laws, she wanted to bring the rule of law, she wanted to bring order, essentially, to the rule of the Russian people. And architecture played a critical role in that. And uh, the example on the left is, is a good one. She wanted, first of all, to improve the lot of the Russians, and that meant providing them with services which had not been previously available, for example, like churches and schools and uh, law courts and so on. And this isn't just in St. Petersburg. This is across the Russian Empire in its totality. And she wanted uniformity amongst those social services. I mean, you can imagine the challenge. Well, we know the challenge that Canada has faced in the 20th century providing services, you know, in a large, you know, land. Uh, Russia's got to be two or three times the size of Canada, and this is the 18th century. It was a colossal challenge. Architecture played a critical role because, of course, it was the buildings that housed these new social services, essentially. And more important, well, just as important, certainly for Catherine, was the fact that these buildings symbolized this new, powerful, centralized 
government and its ability, I suppose, to act in a rational and orderly manner to bring a, a, a higher a standard of living, essentially, to the Russian people. I can tell you the language that Catherine uses is very maternal. It's all about compassion and caring and, and, um, and essentially kind of love of her people. There's no question about that. And she had very strong and very genuine feelings about bringing, this is, these are words of hers, happiness and prosperity uh, to the Russian people. So the building on the left happens to be an academy, happens to be the Academy of Sciences. And in some, some ways, it's kind of symbolic of what Catherine did with buildings. She wanted to make it very clear from the outset uh, that she supported modernity, that she supported exploration, that she, in, in fact, supported the sciences. She supported development, new developments in industry and, and uh, commerce and, agricultural and agriculture and so on. And she needed a home, and she needed a symbolic home for it, and it makes complete sense to take one of the finest locations on the Neva River, right, right in the heart of the city, quite visible actually from her home, you know, the Winter Palace, and give it a prominence. And, uh, of course, to give it a kind of temple front, which we'll see repeatedly through the buildings tonight, in a sense, an obvious way of honoring, honoring the sciences, right, through giving us this sense that this is actually a temple, a temple of reasonable thought, of rational thought and exploration and experimentation, study, and so on. It was all about location, location, location. There would be no sense in putting such an important uh, government building on some back street, right? She, she knew the value of um, sorry, presentation. And at the same time that she was working through all of this public kind of policy, essentially, it was all a kind of state policy around building, she was, of course, interested in living amidst attractive surroundings. And uh, she worked, I think, very hard to ensure that she had certainly some of the most beautiful um, uh, environments, interiors of, of any monarch uh, alive in Europe in the 18th century. And this gives you a little bit of a sneak preview of uh, some of her later projects. She called it the snuff box. It was a tiny little room. It's hardly bigger, I think, than probably my bedroom at home. It has a, a truly kind of exquisite quality about it all. Anyway, she called architecture a disease. She knew she suffered from it uh, very badly, and she derived enormous pleasure from it. The The Backdrop, essentially, to her fascination and to her commitment, to her desire to construct on a scale, I expect, that perhaps Europe had never seen before, is, of course, a, a revival of interest, and this took Russia, uh, Europe, I should say, by storm, a revival of interest in antique Rome. This is a critical kind of subplot, obviously, through this exhibition and through her, her interest in architecture. And just to give you a sampling of what was going on around her, uh, on the left you see uh, some English uh, connoisseurs gloating over their prizes, um, you know, acquired obviously from their trips to, to Rome. It was all about studying ancient Rome, uh, about collecting ancient Rome, and about going there. And I think some of you already know uh, the tragedy, perhaps in Catherine's life, is that she was never able to actually get there. Right? I think she had a very clear sense that if she left Russia for any reason, she might not have a throne to sit on when she came back. Uh, there's the fantasy, essentially, that, that uh, Catherine has to live out from two or 3,000 miles away, and she uses all of the uh, means at her disposal to live out this very rich fantasy, including, of course, the commissioning and purchasing of works of art which evoke, th in a very powerful way, what it was like to be in Rome you know, 1,800 years previously. And this is certainly one of the great uh, specimens in our exhibition. It's by a Frenchman named Clary So, who specialized in these wonderful um, 
exotic kind of evocations. And just a couple little quotes here from Catherine because sometimes she does get, she does get rather hmm, kind of worked up on the subject of Rome and actually this guy, Clary So. She says, Oh, Rome, Rome, the rest of the world cannot compete with you in the arts, in the ruins, and in so many ways. It, it is an obsession, really. And then she says, Today, this is Clary So, right, the name of the artist. Today we received six wonderful Clary So's and we are dumbfounded. Right? So every day, apparently, she would take some of these drawings out of their cabinets and examine them. And of course, she became a very, very knowledgeable patron. Just a quick review, in a way, and it was a review for myself, perhaps, as much as anyone. What are the basic ingredients that Catherine's architects, in a sense, brought to Russia from Rome, right, from their experiences in Rome. And I just want to quickly run through them, and I'm sure you're familiar with all of them. Of course, the column, an adaptation from, from the Greeks. It has something inherently, I don't know why, something inherently noble and simple about it. It has a very pow powerful kind of emotive quality, and it's used in obviously a variety of ways uh, throughout, throughout Russia in this uh, period of neoclassicism. The Romans, I didn't know this, actually invented the arch. So we're going to see the arch rather frequently this evening. Uh, they also apparently invented the dome. And uh, on, you, on the left you see an image of the Pantheon, a coffer dome that is of brick, which lightens the load with, as you can see, a hole in the middle, an oculus, which again we're going to see uh, through the evening. And they also invented the vault. We're going to see that again and again. They also invented the apse, as you can see there on the left, with a kind of half dome, again, very elaborately coffered, as you can see. And then, from the standpoint of... I guess I don't have a pointer here. From the standpoint of the uh, layout, essentially, of uh, Roman baths and palaces and so on, this happens to be the baths of Caracalla, um, she and her architects were very interested in two aspects. One is the axial nature of the layout of the rooms. That is, essentially, they're lined up in a straight line, often course, at, uh, at right angles to each other. You might uh, see a cluster here of four. So that's item number one. They all kind of line up axially. Um, but equally important, the, the Romans were fascinated by variety in rooms, one to the next. So one might be round, and one might be square, and one might be octagonal, and, and so on. And you can see even in that one strip that there's a, a very clever variation being played out, and the architects of Russia in the 18th century absorb this, this particular aspect of, of Roman architecture. Of course, there are also the use of columns throughout the interiors, and I think you can even see those little black uh, circles uh, throughout these baths. Of course, the Romans used extensive relief uh, sculpture, as you can see there on the Arch of Constantine on the left, medallions, obviously those rounded uh, forms and so on. We're going to see this throughout uh, the 18th century, a very important way of communicating. And, of course, uh, a lot of Roman sculpture produced in its own day, but then adapted and uh, certainly kind of copied uh, through Catherine's reign. Catherine also co-opted specific Roman building types. And uh, there's a very simple example there on the left. That's the Arch of Titus. And uh, uh, Catherine's kind of equivalent from the very beginning of her career, a rather monumental portal to a rather uh, mm, kind of unexciting uh, section of St. Petersburg. It's actually an area that served the Russian Navy. Um, I just happened to think of the Prince's Gate. Does everybody know the Prince's Gate, uh, you know, at the CNE? 
the next time you're driving by there, you'll be startled at how similar it looks to the Arch of Titus. So, you know, these are, these are motifs that are carried, obviously, thousands of miles and uh, over thousands of years. Catherine also, of course, uh, was fascinated, or, you know, at specific, uh, on the subject of specific Roman monuments. None, of course, better preserved and none more interesting, I expect, for her than the Pantheon, which you see there on the left. This, this is the Russian equivalent, in a sense, on the right, which is the Moscow University, simply taking this dominant temple portico, which is a very critical theme uh, in neoclassical architecture, of course, as it is in Roman architecture, and applying it to the front of this uh, university building. And lastly, uh, a very elegant uh, circular temple on the left there from Hadrian's villa kind of evoked in uh, a masterpiece, essentially, at Catherine the Great's son's uh, summer estate there on the right. Now, of course, the basic question is, how did Catherine learn? And I expect word of mouth is very critical. But she, she was a serious reader, and she had a vast, extensive library of architectural books. And there's just a nice little sentence here, because, of course, she wrote so much about all this stuff. She says, I am passionately interested in books on architecture. They fill my room, and even that is not enough. She just bought and bought and bought and studied and studied and studied. And I think that, uh, you know, when perhaps we're planning redecorating in our house or something, we look at uh, Architectural Digest and we flip through Canadian House and Home or something like that, I know. That's what I would do. Catherine had the luxury, of course, of looking through the absolutely superior treatises of her day by all the hot uh, kind of architects and architectural historians. And I just draw your attention to perhaps two of the most famous who she relied on very extensively. On the left, a print by Piranesi of the Colosseum and the Arch of Constantine. This is the kind of stuff you can clearly see her pouring over by the hour. And at the same time, uh, um, architect of the 16th century, Italian named Palladio, some of you may know his work, from the north, he himself obsessed with ancient Rome and who began to publish his critical findings. You have to picture, first of all, the likes of Palladio and secondly, the architects of the 18th century really kind of uncovering these monuments. You have to remember Herculaneum was discovered in 1738, Pompeii 10 years later. There must have been a huge amount of excitement about, the, about these discoveries. And I can picture these architects climbing up and down their ladders measuring and it's these books, obviously, that are then sent abroad that allow the likes of Russian architects and foreigners working in Russia to, in a sense, replicate uh, with some considerable degree of authenticity the, the Roman monuments, right? Okay, so Catherine, in a sense, presides over a, a remarkable transformation in the style of Russian architecture. And this is to give you a, just a very uh, straightforward kind of comparison. What you see on the left is what she inherited, essentially kind of Baroque Rococo of her predecessor, Empress Elizabeth. This was, in a sense, Empress Elizabeth's kind of masterpiece, the summer palace uh, known as Sarska Zelo, a wild kind of exuberant uh, essay on ornament. It's all about uh, fancy uh, detail, uh, cartouches, uh, asymmetrical uh, kind of design. Um, all of the, the, the carving that you see there, by the way, was gilded. So you have some sense of the, the dazzle, right? The brilliant colors, the rich uh, gilding. 
And uh, not to mention, aren't there quite large sort of male figures? They've been in the gym, I think, a very long time. (laughs) Not that I'm jealous or anything. There are more male figures up on top. There is absolutely no wall. This is an essay in decoration, in a sense, and the columns are kind of subsumed amidst this great array of playful, joyous, exuberant um, decorative motifs. On the right, of course, is the invention of the neoclassical era, over which, of course, Catherine presides. You can see, for the first time, actual wall. It's very critical to have this smooth, dignified surface against which the architects set their very carefully considered decoration, and that means, in in this case, uh, very composed uh, statuary, nothing like the the bulging uh, muscles and twisting kind of tortured forms of the earlier period, and very specific allusions uh, in the niches and so on to Roman uh, prototypes. The colors always uh, subdued in the era of Catherine, so she rejects um, those, those intents, especially that blue of her predecessors, she, she said that that uh, style uh, caused her to feel sick. The nausea, she said. Nausea was the word. And then from an interior point of view, this again is the remarkable transformation that she oversees from the wild, uh, again, over-the-top kind of carving. You have to remember this is not plaster. This is actual wood carving recreated by the Soviets after the destruction of this palace, the Summer Palace in the Second World War. In any case, um, fabulously gilded. Each room, interestingly enough, is very, very similar to the one before. They're all kind of white, and they're all covered in this this gold, uh, very fancy filigree. The neoclassical style on the whole, of course, rejects the gilding. It rejects the exuberant uh, um, asymmetry, essentially, of the earlier design for something much calmer, cooler. The words dignified and simplified and so on come up uh, so frequently in the language of the 18th century, as you can see there on the right. We'll come back to that uh, particular project later. Russia, of course, was a vast, vast world. There you see it. Um, Could I, excuse me, could I have the pointer? I'm kind of missing it, actually, but maybe it's, is it here somewhere? Thank you. There's the map. And all I want you to see is <laughs> the scale of the country, first of all, just as a reminder. European uh, Russia that we know uh, is, of course, at the extreme left, and that's St. Petersburg and Moscow. And in the lower uh, sort of section here, you'll see the Black Sea and the vast kind of lands that Catherine and her cohort, uh, Grigory Potemkin, conquered on behalf of the Russian Empire. throughout the old lands and the new lands, Catherine wanted to provide, again, uniform services. And it was a huge, obviously a huge challenge for her. I must say that her projects in these areas are not well known, and I cannot possibly talk to them because I don't know anything about them, and the literature, I think, in the West is very slim, and I I think it would be a fascinating place to travel to, ultimately. So we are going to focus pretty much on St. Petersburg, but on our way there, I wanted to stop for one second in Moscow just to give you a sense of the extraordinary ambition that Catherine had for building in in the 1760s, 70s, and uh, 80s, a little bit into the 90s. This was a project for the reconstruction of the Kremlin, right? the Moscow Kremlin, and is a small section of the original design. 
And I can tell you, I think it would have proven to be the largest building in the world if it had ever been completed. Fortunately for posterity, uh, she, she ran out of interest, essentially, if not cash. And it, it really never came to fruition in, in, in any meaningful way. But it gives you a, some sense of the grandeur and pomposity, in a sense, of some of her, of some of her uh, ideas. She wanted to transform the Moscow Kremlin into a kind of Athenian Acropolis, very much, again, a reference back to uh, ancient times. Just as a, as a reminder, perhaps, for those of you who've been lucky enough to go to St. Petersburg, and for those of you who haven't, the scale of the city is, is simply beyond one's imagination. The river's got to be ten times wider than the Seine. It's very unusual. It's the widest river running through any city I've ever been in in my life. And it somehow sets the mood for the actual urban design itself. And this square is, is rather immense, sitting out in front of the uh, Winter Palace. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> and <coughs> Catherine had to somehow work within the, 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 f the framework of this vast kind of open river and so on. And she worked very hard to, to uh, commission um, buildings, structures, designs, city planning and so on on this, this rather grandiose scale. But <coughs> she, began, she began her architectural kind of patronage in a somewhat modest manner. The year she acquired the throne, 1762, she commissioned a private dacha, you know the Russian word for the little cottages that they all love to hang out in on weekends. This was her dacha, I'm guessing about 20 miles outside of St. Petersburg at an estate known as Oranienbaum, which means simply orange tree. Uh, it's actually where um, Stravinsky was born. He was born in the little town of Oranienbaum. Very beautiful parkland. And she built in a style appropriate to 1762, which was half in the camp of the Baroque and the Rococo and half in the camp of the emerging neoclassical style. And you can see something of the uh, simplicity and nobility, in a sense, of the, the pilasters on the left-hand side of the building. But look at the, I call them the eyebrows over top of the windows, uh, are, are kind of a reminiscent of the Baroque and the Rococo. There's lots of filigree and so on, which suggests, again, this is a building that sits on the fence. The interior is a rather spectacular essay in the pure Rococo. It's full of delight and lots, again, of this sort of vegetable um, decoration, lots of plant life and so on, in the Chinese mode, which lends the, the, the small pavilion its name. It's called the Chinese uh, Palace. Uh, very quickly, I think Catherine began to move on. She hired, of course, architects from across Europe, Germans, French, Italians, Scottish, and so on. And uh, she brought in, in uh, the early 1760s uh, a man named Valin de la Motte from Paris, essentially to teach Russians right, this, this new uh, style of architecture. And at the same time, she commissioned him to build one of the most grandiose buildings in all of Russia, I think certainly in St. Petersburg, which immediately put a stamp on her attitudes to the visual arts, that is, the Academy of Art. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, it gives you a very clear sense right off the top that she is committed to the use of arts in the aid of, of her own personal power and, of course, in improving the status of Russia uh, internationally. This is an immense building. It is a square, by the way, right? It's got to be three or four times the size of the AGO. I wonder if it's the largest Academy of Arts ever constructed. It, it may well be. And grand it is in this emerging new style in which so much is taken away. There isn't the statuary and there aren't the 
elaborate urns and there aren't the bright colors. It's, this is called, I mean, it's referred to as chromatic, of course, or I'm sorry, monochromatic as opposed to bichromatic, which I guess is the term so frequently used to describe the earlier style, which is always white and something else. This is taking on a new a kind of serenity and nobility. Uh, one of the major works in the exhibition, which you can see here on the right, this still life by the French artist uh, Chardin, was essentially commissioned to be housed in this building and obviously to inspire uh, the young artists, although typically Catherine you know, loved it so much it never got there. <laughs> Catherine then went on with this uh, French architect to, to develop her own home. I think this is probably very familiar to you, the Winter Palace there on the right, a rather grand building, a thousand giant rooms, uh, not conducive to those quiet uh, evenings at home. And so Catherine uh, kind of invented um, an evening event, a soiree. And it, this, this I didn't know. She called these soirees hermitages. Didn't know that, really. And it's these events which obviously have brought us to now label this whole giant complex of museum um, the hermitage. So the little building to the left of the Winter Palace, uh, which you see right here. Oh, thank you. Uh, right there is uh, Catherine's attempt at retiring from these grand public spaces and having a nice place to hang out with her friends, play cards and, and essentially, you know, chat. And she was, you know, a very witty and engaging and intelligent woman and she wanted to, to socialize. So here's the building on the right and it's, it's increasingly... Thank you. That's brilliant. Thanks so much. Um, it's increasingly um, looking like a neoclassical building with a lot of emphasis placed on uh, the portico as a central kind of organizing feature. There's usually a podium which is rusticated, you know, so rather roughly uh, kind of carved. The statuary is significantly reduced, very, very carefully positioned. There are actually motifs here which look distinctly and accurately Roman, uh, adapted, of course, for, for this specific scale. So, Winter Palace, and then the next little uh, construction here is what you see here. The next, oh, and I should say at the same time that this was built not just for socializing, but because Catherine, I think as you probably all know, had an insatiable desire to collect works of art. We've certainly been talking about vacuuming. You know, she vacuums her way kind of across Europe, and the remarkable thing is that she eventually owned 4,000 old master paintings. An extraordinary feat in a matter of just a couple of decades. She needed a place for this a growing collection, and uh, this seemed like a natural home, but very quickly you can imagine she outgrew it. And uh, she had to move further down the quay, built this rather large building here, and then that wasn't enough. She needed a little private theater, and eventually she, you know. It's about from McCall to Young Street, I would say, if you needed a Toronto equivalent. Just to give you a sense, here's the Winter Palace, this big structure here. Here's the original palace, which she inherited. Here's the little, uh, uh, you know, place for evening soirees. This is where her lovers hung out. She had a little pavilion built at the other end. These are her private apartments here. She had what was called a hanging garden built here, which doesn't mean hanging. I, I was pictured hanging pots on my balcony, but it's an elevated garden. It's on a, it's not on the main, it is not on the main floor with adjacent galleries for works of art. And then she built this rather large wing, which you see here, right? Again, in this rather pared down, rather somber kind of style uh, here. And then, of course, she built the theater, finally. And then it just continued to grow. And it's continuing to grow into all these buildings over here and down here and so on. There's just no stopping it. 
Catherine uh, hired a, a Russian architect very early on named Velton. He was of German extraction, presumably. And uh, one of his jobs, uh, in a sense, was to uh, provide uniformity within St. Petersburg itself because she developed, she inaugurated something called the Commission of Stone Construction for St. Petersburg. That is, she wanted to establish a set of bylaws which would do all sorts of things. One is to prevent the construction of any wood building in the city, I think for reasons of fire, if for no other reason. Um, secondly, um, she wanted to establish the width of streets and the heights of buildings and, and the setbacks and all these kinds of codes that I think we assume are part of, part, part of life in a, in a major city. She was very keen on, and hence the, the wonderful kind of uniformity in a city like St. Petersburg. Nothing mattered more to her than the construction of the embankments of the city. If you look back at period prints, you'll see that parts of the Neva River, which is this you know, huge thing flowing through the city, actually lapped up against sand. Right? There was beach with a grand building set against that beach. It probably wasn't appropriate from a visual point of view, but it certainly wasn't appropriate given the spring runoff and the kind of you know, um, results of, of really massive amounts of water rolling through here, usually in April. So there's the ice, by the way. I was lucky enough to be there and see all this happen. This um, slide on the left gives you some sense of what these rather grand embankments looked like in, in Finnish granite, very handsome, and this architect Velton out, outdid himself in a way in their, in their simple uh, kind of grandeur. He became famous, and he certainly is famous in Russia today, although hardly you know, a household name here, for his splendid uh, railings, essentially, around the summer garden, which you see there on the right, very much in the Roman mode, these splendid, simple granite Roman uh, columns uh, topped by um, urns. Right? Very, very handsome indeed. Belton also played a role, some of you probably have been in the exhibition, in the transportation of the rather uh, unorthodox base which was used um, to support probably the most important commission of Catherine's life, and that is a homage to her, not her ancestor, but her predecessor, Peter the Great, right? a kind of revolutionary and serious modernizer in his own right. She decided uh, finally that the, the only thing that would work as a base would be a single rock. I think it's an erratic. Do you know we, we have erratics? You know, the things that uh, the Ice Ages have dumped all over. I think there are actually some authentic in Toronto, and then there's the one up in uh, Yorkville, which actually got brought out of the woods here. Obviously, a remarkable technological feat in the 18th century to bring, as it was, an 1,800-ton hunk of rock into St. Petersburg, which is something like 13 miles on land and sea. This architect, Velton, played a very critical role in, the ex in this extraordinary feat. It was compared, you know, it has been compared by experts to uh, the uh, first Sputnik in space. So, Catherine also hired Italian architects. First was Antonio Rinaldi. Rinaldi was Roman-born, so you can imagine how thrilled she would be to actually have someone in her presence who was born in Rome and who actually had seen these monuments and kind of grown up with them. And he um, um, designed uh, two rather important structures for, I would say, important, serious important lover number one, um, who was Grigory Orloff, a name I'm sure familiar to, to many of you. This, was, this is the 1760s. This is payback time, right? She has been put on the throne with the assistance of her lover, Grigory Orloff, and his four brothers, and it is time to acknowledge uh, their, their contribution. Right? They've, they've put her on the throne. In fact, a cartouche over the building on the right actually said, in gratitude, 
So it was a very public statement. Right? She, had, she owed everything, actually, uh, to those five men and a few more, too. So Rinaldi uh, um, came with a, a thorough understanding of this sort of neoclassical idiom, and uh, he created a couple masterpieces. This one, again, given a very prominent position. That was critical for Catherine. Gregory Orloff was, I, su- I assume, the most important man in the empire at the time. Location, location, location. It was very critical for her to advertise and to, to, to thank him in a very public manner. So it is a rather, rather cool, uh, grandiose uh, structure. It is the result, to some degree, of uh, her interest in science and her support of geological expeditions into the, into the, into the Ural Mountains, into Siberia, because it's made out of Finnish granite on the ground floor and six different marbles, six different colored marbles above. And it was the first building in St. Petersburg to be built of marble, and for that reason it's called the Marble Palace. So that's Gregory Orloff's summer, uh, winter home. His summer palace is what you see there on the left, also built by this Italian architect, Rinaldi. And it is a kind of uh, uh, Palladian villa, a sort of little central uh, uh, kind of cube here, uh, two arms reaching out and what were two quite small uh, service wings to either side, and then two kind of unusual kind of castle-like towers from which Gregory Orloff apparently liked to use his telescope. He was very interested in scientific uh, instruments of one sort or another. And the place is, is, is set in very beautiful land, and apparently Catherine spent a lot of time here, you know, in the woods, picnicking and boating and, and just uh, strolling. When or- Orloff died, Catherine gave this uh, estate to her son, and he enlarged it into this rather grandiose thing that you now see. In 1773, Catherine had a vision, in a sense. She, she, had a, she wanted to play out a fantasy, and that fantasy was to live as a Roman empress, essentially to eat Roman food and wear Roman clothes and bathe in the Roman style and, and, and so on, right? To be all-encompassing, in, all to be inside, you know, and living that uh, fantasy. And uh, she um, asked for, in a sense, submissions to help her live out this fantasy for what she called la maison antique, that is... Uh, house in the antique style. And two architects from France responded to that request. Neither well-known, perhaps, today. The fellow on the left is named De Vailly, W-A-I-L-L-Y. And he sent uh, a rather um, beautiful design, I think, that Catherine admired deeply, uh, but which she did not ultimately uh, construct. And it's made out of a, a circular uh, kind of podium, an entrance kind of podium that you can see centered on a figure of Minerva. And I expect, for those of you who haven't seen the exhibition, um, the subject of Minerva is a very critical one in the show because Catherine actually, in a sense, um, takes on the guise of Minerva, goddess of war, the intellect, and the art. So it's appropriate that she should be greeting guests here. And then there are kind of two uh, pavilions to either side and a dome at the back. Keep that in mind because this, this design is going to come back in a few moments. And then uh, 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 Clary So, who we've recently encountered, also uh, contributed uh, designs to her imaginary uh, maison antique, but which she clearly wanted to see realized at some point in time. I mean, what do you do? I know there's at least one architect in the building, but what do, what do you do when somebody says to you, you know, as an architect, um, and she happens to rule one-seventh of the world's landmass, um, I want a house that's neither large nor small. And is that going to be the size of the Grange, you know, which is attached to us here? Or is it something more like the size of Union Station or more? 
And as it turned out, given the vagueness, in a sense, of Catherine's brief, um, Clarisseau designed something on a truly colossal stage, a uh, scale. I'm sorry, somewhat in in the style, certainly the internal, uh, you know, internal uh, walls and so on, somewhat in the style of what you see there on the right, a rather splendid watercolor on view upstairs. It was beyond one's wildest imagination, and Catherine was. I think, deeply offended by the scale of it, the inappropriateness of it, ultimately, of course, by the price. So it, needless to say, uh, never came to fruition. At the same time, I should add, just as an aside, that, that uh, architects such as this, this uh, Frenchman named Dupre sent unsolicited uh, designs later on in her career uh, for, as it turns out, uh, a temple of immortality, of course, to Catherine herself. And these are two of the most splendid architectural drawings in the exhibition. I hope you'll have a chance to see them in all their glory. They are rather over the top, clearly in the monumental Roman imperial uh, style. Catherine's second Italian um, architect was, I think, the most lovable man of the time. There he is at the left. He must have been, from a visual point of view, something of a laughingstock, because there are many, many character caricatures of him. And uh, someone said, you know, instead of a nose, he had a bluish bulb. And there, there of course, he, he, you know, he is the subject of, of some, some derision in these images on the left. But an enormously talented man. He was a workaholic. He was born in Bergamo in northern Italy, very close to the hometown of really, I suppose, one of the most influential architects of all time, and that is Palladio, who I mentioned before. His hometown was Vicenza. And in Vicenza is probably the most influential house design of all times, and that is Palladio's Villa Rotonda. What he did was to take a simple cube, and I, I hate to say simply, but simply attach to each one of its facades a temple portico. Right? which instantly adds a kind of spectacular grandeur to a relatively modest house. And the impact of that, I mean, if you can think of um, uh, many buildings actually in the United States, and actually many of them here, think of Osgood Hall, for example, all of those wonderful sort of buildings really come out of Palladio and uh, his wonderful invention. So Quarangi lived near Palladio. He had studied in Rome. He had studied in Vicenza. And uh, he was happy to bring this rich... Uh, material with him all the way to Russia with his family in 1779, and he spent the uh, rest of his life in Russia working for Catherine on essentially public uh, commissions. This, however, is a private commission for one of the parks. It is his first building in Russia. It's called the English Palace because it does bear some resemblance to how the English were interpreting uh, ancient Rome on their own. I would say about 20 years ahead of the Russians and this is a rather beautiful building. I don't know whether any of you have been to Kettleston. It's in Derbyshire in the north by Robert Adam, who was uh, an artist deeply committed to modernism, that is, neoclassicism, to the study of Roman monuments, to bringing all that information back to um, England and obviously revolutionizing uh, architecture there. Sadly, that English palace there on the left, Quarangi's first uh, uh, project, was completely annihilated in the Second World War. So that photograph, I expect, is, is a valuable one. This artist, uh, he has an unusual name, Quarengi, Q-U-A-R-E-N-G-H-I, Quarengi, went on to design Catherine's private 
Court Theatre, again along the Neva River, the very last building in that elaborate complex of the Winter Palace. There you see it on the left, uh, using all the kind of vocabulary that we would associate with Roman architecture. There are uh, columns, I think there are probably half columns. Uh, there are niches and statuary and busts and uh, a simple kind of rusticated podium and so on. A lot of wall, a lot of clarity and simplicity and ultimately kind of dignity. If there are two words that belong together in the minds of the Romans and in the minds of the 18th century, it's simplicity and nobility. And they're quite right. The two of them somehow uh, belong happily together. What you see on the right is his design for the interior, again, very much in the neoclassical uh, mode with, interestingly enough, as a backdrop, uh, some kind of vague play, again, on the Pantheon. Right? Think of Convocation Hall, by the way. I walk by it every day, and my God, these buildings are, are all, all over our own city in, in their own uh, kind of permutation. And then Quarengi went on to build 40 major structures in St. Petersburg. So in a way, the imperial grandeur that we associate with that city today is to some very large degree the result of this one man. There you see on the left uh, a place, I think, where the horses were practiced. It's the manege, which I'm assuming is, you know, is like where the Lippenzanners hang out in, in, in Vienna, a rather grand structure. On the right, uh, a palace built for Catherine the Great's uh, favorite ga- grandson, later Emperor Alexander I. A rather uh, truly grandiloquent kind of essay in the Roman style. Look at that double... A colonnade running across the front. This is, by the way, the home of Nicholas and Alexandra, and it's from this estate that the two of them left, essentially for internal exile and, and finally, of course, assassination. And then Quarengi went on and on and on, and, and, and St. Petersburg is rather breathtaking from this point of view. Um, I, I, for a long time, I didn't know what this building was, but on the right, that was, it's called the Catherine Institute, so I'm assuming it was a school, uh, essentially, maybe of higher learning, but rather splendid, no? On a on a rather poetic lot with that beautiful uh, canal in the foreground. And then, and then one of uh, Quarengi's uh, uh, most famous buildings, actually, the Smolny Institute. Catherine was very committed. I think Gillian mentioned this right up front, very interested in the issue of education. And the Smolny Institute was, uh, if not the first school in all of Europe for girls, certainly the first school in Russia uh, for young girls of the noble class. A spectacular building of which you only see a very small section here. And I just draw your attention to this gentleman here. Can anybody see who that is? It's certainly not Peter the Great, although his arm is raised in a very similar manner to Peter the Great. That's Lenin. And Lenin actually orchestrated the revolution from (laughs) the Smolny Institute, ironically enough. Enough for the Italians. Catherine uh, took on, in the same year as Quarengi, 1779, a rather cantankerous individual from London, England, a Scotsman by birth, and there he is on the right. He looks somewhat Dickensian to me. He was very difficult to get along with, and I think his career suffered as a result of his lack of interpersonal skills. Um, He has an odd reputation, in a way, exceedingly admired in Russia, and I think to a very large degree, completely unknown in the West, that his reputation rests on just a few years, six or seven, um, immediately following his arrival in Russia, 1779. Very, very intense period of six or seven years, and then he seems to kind of fizzle out. And that reputation is based on a cluster of 
very eccentric private little projects for Catherine. So he's not the public builder that Quarendi was. He, he worked exclusively for Catherine. Now this is her estate called Zarskia Zela, which means essentially Tsar's village. It's about 20 kilometers outside of uh, St. Petersburg, and it's sort of off in the distance here. And I must say I had a rather spine-chilling moment when you know, this Russian friend of mine stopped the car about here, and he said, this is where the Nazis got to. And this is where they lobbed, right, their artillery into St. Petersburg from. And, of course, we know that a million people died in this terrible 900-day siege. What it meant was that everything from this line to the bottom of the image was occupied land. And when the Nazis left, they did everything to destroy um, what they had been living amongst. And that meant this palace. So it was essentially burnt to the ground, or the innards were burnt, with a few minor exceptions. So... Here's the, uh, uh, the architect on the right. His name is Charles Cameron. And here are the little projects, just so we have some sense of orientation. He built a suite of rooms at the church end of the palace. You have to remember Catherine inherited this great monster. This is the blue one, right? The blue palace. Uh, so a suite of rooms for Catherine the Great's son. And th there wasn't a lot of love lost between those two. And then I think this is rather symbolic. Her suite is down here. It couldn't be separated by any longer distance. And then, so a second suite of the most exquisite rooms down here. And then two more buildings, uh, or two, I should say two buildings, uh, very closely associated with them. A, a very odd little building here, the Baths, the Agate Pavilion. This is a proper name. Can everybody see a little building here? And then a very beautiful structure that looks somewhat like a temple sticking out from the palace. So Catherine had the ability to in a sense, hang out in her private little rooms. And she was, I think, the first Russian uh, monarch to actually have a private life, right? And she wanted it. She wanted to be a kind of private individual. And then she could step out of the door here and, as it turns out, get some of her exercise in this uh, beautiful and elegant uh, sort of elevated colonnade. Then, of course, there are rather elaborate sort of broke gardens, and there are acres and acres and acres of kind of English-style gardens, too, which are the subject, I expect, of another, of another talk. Cameron had been to Rome. He was dogged, I, I should say, by, um, by uh, rumor and, uh, and some unfortunate occurrences back in England. So he clearly had no, no future there. But he did go to Rome, and he was a scholar. He was a kind of self-taught scholar, and he studied the Baths of Rome. And he published a very important and very scholarly book called The Baths of Rome. And... It's how Catherine obviously got to find out about him enough to bring him to Russia. And on your right, you can see uh, a, a, a simple sample of a kind of drawing that he would have done on the spot in Rome, right, in order to achieve absolute accuracy. And there's a wonderful story of him actually knocking a hole. You have to remember that Rome was full of dirt, you know, up like, I don't know, 15 or 20 feet. He so had to knock a hole in a wall, and then he had let himself down on a rope, and then he had to knock it way through another wall. Then he'd up and you know, crawling around on his hands and knees and all this dirt. And he was up against the wall and looking at things very, very carefully. And, of course, he would be transcribing much of what he saw. And there were two-inch-high little figures in, in three dimension. And he put his fingers up to those figures, and when he touched them, they just dissolved into powder. Right? So you can imagine how much of this rich heritage has been lost even since, since the 18th century. In any case, he spent 
I think scholars think about a year studying all of these monuments, drawing them, and of course he ultimately published them. And uh, you can see very clearly um, this is the, I think the most, well, certainly one of the two or three most important rooms of the first suite designed for Catherine the Great's eldest son the Grand Duke and heir, the Grand Duke uh, Paul, very much in the Roman style, what he had seen, and yet nothing is, is a copy. That, that, that isn't the concept. It's to play. He's not there to be a slave to the antique models, but simply to use them as a source of inspiration. And yet, clearly, you can see the design on the right is somehow echoed in those uh, plaster uh, kind of high-relief figures. There's a combination of figural motifs, uh, foliate kind of motifs, vines and so on of one sort or another, and then a very common a sort of series of almost vase-like forms that are piled on top of each other. Very kind of playful, elegant, uh, understated. The other a very beautiful room and, and uh, enormously important in a sense in Russia is the bedroom of the Grand Duke and his wife, the Grand Duchess. And here is an example of Cameron giving a very um, uh, a special kind of twist to what he inherits from the ancients. Um, for example, he presumably went to Pompeii, and there he would have seen uh, a fresco such as you see here. And can you see the, where are they here? Uh, there's one there, a very narrow, I would call this a colonnette, right? Everybody see that? And here's one here, and here's one here. The genius of Cameron is that he was able to take essentially a two-dimensional design and transform it into a full three-dimensionality. You see that? The actual structure of the bedroom, and the bed would have sat in this alcove, is designed around these very slender columns, which, uh, interestingly enough, are made of porcelain. Right? So there was a kind of preciousness uh, to the materials which became synonymous with Cameron, and to some degree synonymous with much of Russian neoclassicism. And then there are many other motifs which are um, interpretations, and in some cases I, I expect two exact copies of what are called arabesques, that is the very elaborate uh, design motifs that he would have taken directly from um, Roman prototypes, and then reworkings of, of uh, antique um, um, medallions of one sort or another, sometimes viewed through the, the kind of Wedgwood um, factory in, in England. There are a couple very beautiful drawings by Cameron in the exhibition of um, what's called the Arabesque Room. And here you can get a sense of some of the basic vocabulary, of course, the columns within the form of pilasters in this case, um, interspersed with elegant oval mirrors with elaborate acanthus leaf-like scroll work all around them, which is picked up to some degree uh, above this uh, cornice. And one of uh, Cameron's favorite motifs, which you'll see again and again, the griffin, which is here and on the mirror on these um, uh, small um, stoves, right? Obviously for keeping these rooms warm. Uh, there's the ceiling there on the left, again with many of these uh, very typically Roman motifs, acanthus-like scroll work, uh, allegorical figures, uh, I think in the centers, Venus and, and Cupid, two rather breathtaking um, drawings by, by Cameron. Uh, this suite of rooms, to my knowledge, have not been restored. The first suite of 
Grand Duke Paul's were. These are from the second suite, which were Catherine's, and I do believe, maybe somebody can correct me, that they are either in the process of restoration or hopefully will be restored at some point. Again, completely annihilated by the, by the Nazis. Two of Catherine's most exquisite rooms, I think the one on the left you've already seen, this famous snuff box, was made of none other than glass. Right? And at first I thought, hmm, glass, Russia... But um, I, I was in Russia the last time in June. It was 95 degrees. So we're talking about the summer palace of the Empress, and it would make, I suppose, complete sense you know, to exude that feeling of coolness and so on in the summer to build out of, out of glass. So they're glass, apparently frosted glass panels uh, placed over top of white felt. And rather breathtaking they are with uh, um, some kind of blue glass over foil and so on uh, interspersed. The um, gilding, of course, is bronze right, and, and highly elaborate and, of course, highly sophisticated in its detailing. On the right is Catherine's bedroom, and uh, it has something of the flavor of her son's bedroom in the sense that these very narrow columns, colonnettes, have been once again employed as important design motifs. They are made, in this case, of amethyst glass. So he was one to explore the, the wonderful dimensions of the decorative arts that were being supported by Catherine, again, very much part of the, the theme on view um, in our exhibition. When you stepped out of Catherine's little suite of rooms, you stepped out onto an elevated piece of land, which you see there on the left, a little garden, and ahead of you was the gallery, the kind of colonnade, temple-like structure, which I showed you from the air, and to the left was uh, this other structure known as the Agate Pavilion, a two-story building, which you see here. The bottom is meant to, uh, this, this main floor, the kind of podium, is meant to look like an authentic kind of ancient Roman structure, almost like an aqueduct, something like that. Very, very roughly um, rusticated, very dark, kind of <laughs> brooding and heavy. The up, upper floor is meant to be much lighter and more elegant and refined and so on. The downstairs was a series of baths, because, of course, Catherine wanted to bathe in the Roman manner. There was a frigidarium, there was a, all the, you know, the cold, the hot, and so on, with a bit of Russian thrown in, because the Russians had their own very long tradition of, of communal bathing, right? Um, <clears throat> and then, pardon me, upstairs was a sequence of six reception rooms, and uh, they are something to behold. Amazingly enough, this little building, the Agate Pavilion, was spared by the Nazis because apparently it's where the officers hung out. So this is actually authentic um, from the 18th century. The main reception room of six rooms on the main floor of the Agate Pavilion is what you see there on the right. And for me, it's one of the most beautiful rooms in the world. It seems to combine a kind of, I don't use this word lightly, exquisite kind of detail with a kind of simple grandeur and the kind of simplicity of design, these large kind of empty wall areas and so on. The pièce de résistance, of course, is the ceiling. I don't understand how architects could create such a thing in pre-computer days. Do you see the, the kind of polyhedron-y shape, bizarre forms up there, each one with its own separate uh, kind of Roman uh, relief in it, Roman subject, and uh, all of that supported by these, these very grand uh, marble columns, a very, very understated uh, decoration. You can see some breathtaking um, vases, stone, stonework, and so on, very much in the antique mode. And just to 
you know, give you a sense of the kinds of things that clearly would have been in such rooms uh, throughout, you know, Catherine's estates is uh, an example from our exhibition upstairs. You see something of the antique uh, kind of swagging. There are often ram's heads and lion's heads and so on. There's a whole kind of vocabulary of design which came along with, with these architects and their studies of ancient Rome. <clears throat> Adjacent to that rather large reception room is a series of tiny rooms, and I should say that part of uh, um, Charles Cameron's uh, design aesthetic, essentially, was to create enormous variety from one room to the next. So one might be round and very dark, and the next one might be light and, and square, and, and colors are extremely varied, and essentially dramatic mood changes from one space to the next. So from that very, very large and rather grand monumental central hallway, uh, you enter a very tiny study. It's called the Jasper Study because it was lined in thousands of pieces of jasper. Now this room is intact, although I've never been lucky enough to actually see it. And there you can see some urns up on top here, which are reminiscent of what we have in our show on a somewhat larger scale, this wonderful kind of coffering, uh, dome, dome ceiling, and so on. Uh, the screen, which was used very frequently by Cameron and his buddies, uh, comes very clearly from Roman prototypes. This happens to be the Baths of Caracalla, again, but used it very extensively. So again, taking these immense motifs in Roman days and kind of miniaturizing them and giving them subsequently a kind of exquisite uh, quality. The Cameron Gallery, as it's now called, in honor of Charles Cameron, right, the, the architect, was very temple-like, and yet its origins could, I mean, you could see the front, right, this very elaborate staircase, there's the, the kind of punctuation marked, this, this long uh, colonnade. It could easily also have been based on something that Cameron would have seen in Rome, and that is frescoes of Roman villas, right, and these extensive uh, colonnades made up of, obviously, uh, one column after another. So there it sits up on its uh, podium. I should point out the agate pavilion over, is over here, and between the two is a so-called hanging garden. That is an elevated garden with uh, these large, kind of very Roman-like arches beneath. Catherine did a couple of things in here. One was she got her exercise, right, which is rather important. It was kind of like a gym. Good weather, she could walk outside. In bad weather, she could walk in this enclosed glazed section, a very long, narrow corridor, which also could double, I think, as a banqueting hall. But almost more importantly, it was a temple to the important figures in ancient Rome that she wanted to commune with. She said, I want to be in their society. And when she walked along the length of this gallery, she encountered busts by them. And it's certain that those busts would have brought her somehow closer to these, to these great men, to their great thoughts, to, to, to the values which they espoused and which she wanted to see kind of reinterpreted. Uh, in her own time. Here are a couple more uh, views of the Cameron Gallery. This painting on the right is in the exhibition. There's a bit of a slice of the Cameron Gallery at the right. I'm assuming that this is Catherine herself. She's usually shown with a rather large hat and rather elaborate kind of ruffly thing around her, around her neck. And uh, one of uh, uh, Cameron's last commissions for Catherine was to build her an easy way to get down into the garden because she was putting on weight and I think she suffered from rheumatism and it, there was a rather dramatic drop in the land. So he built her something called Pont Douce, which I think means simply a gentle slope. Right? It was a very sensible way uh, to, go, to get a slightly handicapped elderly woman uh, from one level to another. On the left, uh, you can get a very good image of 
of what the gallery actually uh, looked like in the 18th century, and one of its primary reasons for construction was to afford outstanding views. Isn't this, doesn't this guy have a pair of binoculars or something? Right? Apparently, the common exclamation always was, what a view, when you got out there. And Cameron specifically uh, increased the space between the columns and the colonnade in order to ensure that these views were, were as available as possible. Cameron was then uh, asked by the empress to design a, a kind of a, a state for her son, Paul. Again, this one she didn't get along very well with. And this is certainly one of the most, I think, beautiful structures and, and uh, just locations generally in all of Russia. It's certainly much loved uh, by the Russians. It is a kind of exquisite uh, Palladian uh, estate, essentially. And here we see on the left... Uh, the actual estate is called Pavlovsk, obviously in honor of Grand Duke uh, Paul. There you see it uh, up, on a, up on a little hill. Uh, very much even situated as Palladio situated this very famous Villa Rotonda outside of the Italian city of Vicenza. So the architect, Cameron, went back to Palladio. He read his text very carefully. He might have even carried it with him in order to locate this uh, structure in Russia. It had to be on a hill. It actually had to have a river in front of it. You wanted to be in the center of the estate so you could watch over the activities of the estate. You had to be high up for the view and high up for the breezes and so on. All of that came from Palladio. All of that um, Charles Cameron understood and, and certainly wanted to replicate. There's the palace on the other side. That's kind of courtyard side on the left. It originally um, was simply a one-story kind of uh, a series of curved wings to either side. Here you can see it in its original form. A rather modest uh, kind of country structure, but obviously of, of great um, elegance and very much, again, in the neoclassical style. And two of its interior rooms, one very much in the basilica style, that is a, a long rectangular a columned room, large reception room, and the other a kind of pantheon-like room. You can see the oculus that we saw uh, early on uh, this evening, obviously highly elaborated. The last building that we're going to look at um, was grand beyond many people's dreams, uh, appropriately enough for a rather larger-than-life character, important lover number two, probably husband number two, Grigory Potemkin. Potemkin um, really co-ruled with Catherine for the last almost 20 years of her life. He was a genius. He was a brilliant military strategist. Uh, he was a gifted statesman. He spoke four or five languages. When he traveled to the uh, military theaters, you know, because he was responsible essentially for conquering all these vast areas of southern Russia, uh, which had belonged to the Turks, uh, he traveled with an orchestra of 120 players. Uh, he knew quality, I should say, because uh, I, I read that he he was in Vienna and. Uh, you know, or I don't know whether he was in Vienna. He found out about an, uh, a composer who was living in Vienna. He thought he should bring him to Russia. Can you guess who it might have been? Mozart. Sadly, of course, Mo Mozart died before he got a chance to get there. Catherine, of course, is continually in pay payback mode. She has all these lovers. She treats them very generously, as, as so she should. And um, this, this, this rather spectacular palace is, is one of these final great... Uh, monuments to, to her building interests and ultimately to their great love because they were one of the most extraordinary uh, couples of all time and uh, their accomplishments were 
beyond description. Staggering, absolutely staggering. So uh, this architect is actually is a Russian. His name is Staroff. Staroff took the little Palladian building, let's say, of the Villa Rotonda back in Vicenza, Italy, um, and simply inflated it by about 15-fold, again, to reflect the incredible grandeur of the client himself, which, of course, is, uh, is Gregory Orloff. This is an immense building. I did a little math, and I failed math, actually, all the way through high school, but I think you can count on me this time around. It's uh, 650,000 square meters, which I found out is three times larger than the new AGO when we opened in 2008. Obviously, this is a very, very significant building. It is fortunately still there, more or less, as originally planned. And on your right, a, a painting in the exhibition of the other side, the kind of garden side um, of this immense palace. Just to give you a sense of the interior, there is a large uh, central domed space, the one that you see there on the left. You probably recognize now these uh, screens of columns, which are very typical. You can see, again, this is the Baths of Caracalla. Just as an example, you can see something of the same motif here. Of course, the dome and coffering above. This uh, could hold about 600 musicians on the second floor. Again, you know, Potemkin's crazy about music, although apparently Catherine was completely stone, you know, uh, tone deaf, so maybe it didn't mean much to her, but it meant a lot to him. And on your left, uh, surely one of the truly grand reception rooms in, in all of Russia, if not Europe. Um, 36 ionic capitals. It held about 5,000 people. You can see a, a possible source there. This is the Basilica of Trajan in Rome. You can see something of the elaborate colonnades and, and the curved, you know, the sort of apsidal-like ends. A truly grand space. And it was the setting for a, a tearful farewell between either husband and wife or lovers, Catherine and Potemkin, depending on uh, which history books you read. This Potemkin was responsible for the southern lands, for first of all conquering them, secondly establishing new cities in Catherine's name, providing the social services, etc. Um, at the same time, he essentially governed them, and he had to live in the south and despite the fact that these two presumably were married and had a very close relationship, he couldn't be in two places at one time, and he spent much of the final years of his life in the South. This house, this room, is the setting of their final farewell because he died in 1791, which is five years before Catherine died. He had this extraordinary party, 5,000 to, to, to the event, simply 600 for dinner. Numbers are, are big. And beyond this space is a room which no longer exists. It was the largest winter garden in all of Europe. Immense, immense garden. And there were ballets and so on, all sorts of wonderful performances. At the end of the event, of course, the two did have to say farewell. Potemkin got down on one knee, kissed Catherine. She began to cry. It was a very emotional kind of moment. She actually, by the way, just as an aside, she was a Lutheran. She was brought up to work, work, work. And she had a very regular life. And it went from you know, 6 o'clock in the morning till 11 o'clock at night, seven days a week. And if she ever somehow deviated from that pattern, it was written about. And this party went till 2 in the morning. So she actually stayed three hours longer than she would normally stay, which gives you some in sense of the importance of this event to her. It was a spectacular party, of course, but it had profound kind of symbolic meaning for her. Anyway, she broke into tears, uh, he broke into tears, and they finally did have to say farewell to each other. He was presumably already suffering from malaria, and he died just a few months later 
um, in, the, in the south of Russia with no real further, certainly not uh, personal contact. So it's a, it was, I think, the most famous party ever held in St. Petersburg. It is a kind of legend uh, in its own time. Just by way of conclusion, this commitment on Catherine's part to neoclassicism for everyone's benefit lived on for several more generations. Her grandson, for example, took on the further embellishment of St. Petersburg. It's no wonder it's such a large, impressive, beautiful, urban environment. And just on your left, you get a little sampling of the kind of, again, grandiose Roman quality which this grandson uh, brought uh, to the embellishment of, of St. Petersburg. And I don't know whether this, you can place the, the, the slide on the right. Uh, neoclassicism took a rather peculiar form in Stalinist time. And interestingly enough, and it is a kind of interesting issue, he must have been aware, as Catherine was, of the uh, critical um, co-opting of you know, the grandeur, the magnificence, and so on of the Roman Empire, and clearly built in a very, very similar style. Right? This is very characteristic uh, Stalinist uh, image on the right. So it somehow got transformed and, and in some ways perhaps uh, played with by even the likes of Stalin. It's there, and it's going to hopefully be there for a very long time. Anyway, that's enough on the subject of neoclassicism and Catherine and architecture. Thanks for coming. Thank you.